Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old school basketball to a new school audience. And for today, I wanted to take it all the way back nearly 100 years ago in the development of the game. When we first started this podcast, our mission was to cover the early history of the game to show where the game came from and how it developed over time. The game was invented in 1891 by Dr. James Naismith at the YMCA Training Center in Spring. Springfield, Massachusetts, and that is why the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame is located in Springfield today. That is where the game was invented. As this podcast has gone on, we have expanded to cover stories from basketball history that are either little known or completely forgotten. Our goal is to keep the history alive so that we do not forget how this game came to be what we see today. It seems that many people think that the game started with Michael Jordan, but even Jordan admits that he was the kind of player that he was because of Dr. J who came before him. Dr. J says that he developed his game from Elgin Baylor who came before him. Basketball is the kind of game that continues to develop and build on the moves and strategies that came before. If you watch the Golden State Warriors today, you see an offense where players are moving, the ball is moving, they keep the defense confused, and then get an open shot for either Steph Curry or Klay Thompson, two of the greatest three-point shooters of all time. But where did their offense come from? Look no further than their head coach, Steve Kerr. When Kerr was a player, he played for the Bulls as a teammate of Michael Jordan in Phil Jackson's triangle offense. It was actually Bulls assistant coach Tex Winter who invented the triangle offense in the 1950s for his Kansas State University teams. But nobody at the NBA level used it until Phil Jackson decided to use it with the Bulls and then brought on the inventor of the offense to be his assistant. Kerr also spent time playing for the Spurs under Greg Popovich. So when Kerr was named the head coach of the Warriors, he looked at the roster and their skill sets and decided that the perfect offense for the team would be a combination of Phil Jackson's offense and Greg Popovich's offense with a little bit of Steve Kerr thrown in. He took those concepts and mixed them together and then tailored that to the players he had on the Warriors. He took the Warriors all the way to the NBA Finals in his first five years as head coach, winning it three times. But again, my point with all this is that he took what came before and built upon it. That is how basketball works. That's the part that I love about this game and the part that I love to share with you. Today, I want to talk about the elimination of the center jump after every basket. When the game was first invented, there was very little scoring as nobody really knew how best to shoot the ball. Some threw it up underhanded, some threw it with two hands over their head like a soccer throw-in, some did an early version of a hook shot. Basically, there was no fundamental way to shoot the ball, at least not yet. So that led to scores in the single digits. Now imagine a game where you have the opening tip-off to start the game and then one team scores. After that score, both teams go back to the center circle for another tip-off. Then the other team scores. Then after that score, both teams again return to the center circle and they have another tip-off. Now that sounds incredibly slow and boring. A game like that would take forever. 
Well, that is what the original rules called for after every made basket. The referee would take the ball to the center court and have a center jump. Nobody argued about it since nobody knew any different. That was how the game had always been played. Now remember, these were the days when men played in wool pants and stiff shoes that looked more like work boots. In order to look stylish back then, you had to make sure that you had plenty of mustache wax on the bench to keep your mustache curled nicely at the ends. As the 1890s became the 1900s, there were changes already happening in the game of basketball. Dribbling was invented. It had to be invented because it is not part of the original rules. And if you want to know more about the history of the dribble, go back to episode 24 where I do an entire episode on that topic. Backboards were also added to the baskets because originally it was just a basket with no backboard. The 1900s also introduced the first actual basketball, a ball specifically designed for use in this new wonderful game. In that very first game back in 1891, they used a soccer ball. So the center jump went on unchallenged through the first few decades of the game. Everyone knew the drill. Once a basket was made, everyone would head to midcourt for another center jump. Now what this meant practically is that some teams realized they could keep the ball possession after possession if they could just find a jump specialist to win the ball at every center jump. Many teams tried to find the tallest player they could. The player did not necessarily have to have any real basketball skill other than jumping center and that is exactly what many teams did. They found some really tall stiffs to jump center and that was all he was expected to contribute to the team. Some teams were winning 7, 8, even 9 possessions in a row because they kept winning the tip. A team could dominate a game just by having a good jumper to win the tip. It also slowed down the game because of other rules that were in place at the time. Now this is a good place to take a break and we'll be right back with the rest of the story of the elimination of the center jump right after this. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of the center jump and how it was eliminated from basketball after every made basket. As I mentioned just before the break, a team with a center jump specialist could win multiple possessions in a row. And because there was no shot clock yet, a team could take as long as they wanted before taking a shot. In many cases, a team would hold the ball for nearly an entire quarter before taking a shot. If a team was up by two or three baskets, well, that was a big enough lead to just stall and hold the ball. Now, you can imagine that this led to some extremely boring basketball. 
football games. It was no fun for the players and it was no fun for the fans. And this was a major problem. In those early professional games, they needed to sell tickets and the only way to sell tickets is to have a product that is exciting to watch. If we are just being honest about it, the game of basketball, at least at the professional level, is an entertainment product. You have to have a game that is more fun to watch than going to the movies, or a play, or a hockey game, or bowling, or anything else that isn't basketball. The average fan has only so much money to spend on entertainment. Therefore, professional basketball is in competition with every other form of entertainment available to the average fan. The average fan has to say to himself, I only have enough money to do one thing this weekend. Should I go see a basketball game or should I go see that new movie that's starring Charlie Chaplin? In 1931, one of the best basketball teams in the country at the college level was St. John's University from New York. The team that year had been nicknamed the St. John's Wonder Five. They rarely ever lost a game. They had a collection of truly talented basketball players. They had players like Matty Begovich, Max Posnick, and Rip Gerson. The team went 21-1 and that season, but they did so by playing an extremely slow version of the game. They would keep possession of the ball by stalling. They were winning their games by a scores like 16-12. to I mean, as a strategy, it worked. They were nearly impossible to beat. That same season, there was a triple header of college games at Madison Square Garden featuring all New York area college teams. In the first game, Columbia University beat Fordham University 21-8. In the second game, Manhattan College beat New York University 16-14. In the final game, the St. John's Wonder Five defeated the City College of New York 17-9. The 16,000 fans that bought tickets to this fiasco rained booze on the court for nearly the entire length of the three games. Now, in one sense, I never blame a coach for taking full advantage of the existing rules in order to win a basketball game. After all, that is what they are paid for to win basketball games. But the organizers of the event knew that something had to be done. And back then, the people of influence over New York basketball had influence over the entire basketball world because New York was the mecca of college basketball back then. It took a few years before things happened, but college basketball changed the rule in 1937. They decided that if one team makes a basket, the other team automatically takes the ball out underneath the basket and they get a turn on offense. No more of this center jump nonsense after every basket. There was also a relatively new center line dividing the front court from the backcourt and an additional rule that was created stating that the team had to move the ball into the front court within 10 seconds of inbounding the ball. Now that forced teams out of the backcourt, which is where they would typically employ their stalling strategy. Now they had to move the ball into the front court quickly, and now they were much closer to the defense and stalling was much more difficult to do. Now stalling did not disappear entirely, but stalling was significantly reduced. And that directly led to higher scores. Before the elimination of the center jump, most college teams scored points in the teens and the 20s. After the center jump rule was eliminated, those same teams started scoring in the 40s and 50s, and sometimes even the 60s if they were having a particularly hot shooting night. The professional ranks saw the genius of what the college teams were doing, so they also adopted the same rules in order to speed up their own game. After all, the typical fan wants to see scoring. It is much more fun to see two teams battle it out when the scoring is in the 120s than it is to watch the same two teams in a game where the score is in the 80s. As they say, defense wins championships, 
but offense is what sells tickets. The elimination of the center jump is really what moved basketball from the Stone Age to the Modern Age, and I am so glad that they made that rule change. We are all beneficiaries of that decision. So that is the story of the elimination of the center jump and its impact on the game of basketball. Join us next time when we share the story of when Oscar Robertson sued the NBA for free agency. By filing that suit, he was putting his career at risk. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.